Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 160. This interview is with Adrian Swinsco. He's a consultant, speaker, and author of Rare Business, which also happens to be the name of the consultancy he runs. Adrian has a long track record working with small and big companies on improving their customer experience. He writes for Forbes and hosts a great podcast, which I can encourage you to listen to. In this chat, Adrian talks about some really interesting and different cases of companies delivering a superior customer experience. Some great insights for anyone looking to become more customer-centric. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Someone from the North, living in the South, Adrian Swinsco. Tell us who you are and what you do and, and importantly, what is your mindset? Hi, Minter, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on, the, on your, your podcast today, that's uh, very kind of you. My pleasure. Sure. So who am I? Well, uh, as you say, I'm from the north, but live in the south. And the, from the north, I'm uh, I'm originally Scottish, but I've lived uh, all over the place. I'm currently based in Brighton. Uh, a bit about kind of me. Well, um, I have a background as an economist, but also as a teacher. Um, and then you asked me that question as a, if you like, as a setup for the uh, the interview. Who am I? Who am I? And I thought, oh, that's a really good question. Who am I? So then what I did is I dug out my uh, strengths finder report uh-huh. would be a good thing to do. And and then my top five themes for, for my strengths finder support uh, report is I am strategic, a learner, responsibility, an activator, and a relator. So it sort of means that I, I'm good at sort of pulling ideas together and seeing the trends and things. I really like kind of learning more than kind of the process rather than the end kind of point. Um, in terms of responsibility, well, um, I guess I, I take responsibility for what I say I'm going to do. So I do what I say when I, when I say I'm going to do it. Love that. Yeah. Um, as in terms of an activator, um, I'm good at sort of starting things and getting things kind of going. So actually taking a, a, you know, a whole set of things, particularly in companies and stuff, and just going, well, let's just do something. Let's figure out how to do it and just do it. Crack um, on. And then the other sort of thing is, the final thing is relator in that it says I enjoy close relationships with others. So, I mean, what I think about that is that I'm more interested in really good relationships with a few people rather than sort of like big relationships with a lot of people. So Funny. I have a, a small number of very close friends, and then but I know a lot of, I know a lot of people. Does that make sense? But yeah. it's... It's it's if I relate put that together with the kind of relators thing, it's a lot of it's about activation and getting things kind of going. A lot of it's about kind of relationships and how you work with kind of people. So that's a bit about me. Gives you a bit of a flavour. Um, what do I do? I consult, advise on strategy, business development, marketing for various kind of firms. Um, some big firms, some big brands, but um, I also work a lot with established, fast-growing, entrepreneurial sort of businesses. My particular focus and interest is on customer service and customer experience. Um, As for the second part of your question, what's my mindset? Well, my mindset is that I'm a huge fan of companies and organizations that do great things for their customers and people. So I'll create great environments with great experiences. But I have this uh, set of sayings which sort of, I think, 
wraps up or encapsulates who I am, which is, and that is, I'm a lover of simplicity, an advocate of the human touch with a really useful bit of technology thrown in. That's cool. Well, and, and I suppose that it, it does ring back to this related story where you're, you're more inclined to have a, a small group of really close friends and then you can expand out using technologies for the, the less, less strong friends per se. Sure, sure. That's a good point. That's one yeah. way of looking at it. I mean, and the same goes with customer experience. You know, if you, you know, when you have your really strong, biggest customers, you can't just delegate that to digital. You do need to have a component of, you know, depending on the business, of course, but more, you know, handshaking and handholding as opposed to just sort of dealing with them on Facebook. So you're, I, you know, the thing that really uh, I'm attracted to you, Adrian, and what really, uh, what I wanted you to have on the show is, is about this notion of customer experience and customer service. There's a whole number of dictates that say that customer service is the new marketing. Sure. And, uh, and maybe customer experience is the new product. So mm-hmm. when, when we talk about customer experience, what would you say are, are companies that are doing great things for their customers, to, 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 to use the term you use? Um, I mean, I, I, I thought about that, and I thought the... Um you sent me a question, and in the question there was um, you talked about examples of well-organized companies when it comes to systematically good sort of like customer service and customer experience. And I thought I thought about that, and I thought systematically is a really interesting kind of question because you can read that all sorts of different That's ways. That's true. Does that mean it's about systems? Is it about processes? Is it about, you know, is it about control, or is it just about consistency? And and I'm and I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Um, and now we can all, I can trot out the kind of the, you know, the usual examples of kind of the people that lead in the, the service space. And we all, you know, the usual suspects, I'm not even going to name them because <laughs> they're so, in, in many ways, in this sort of space, their, their use is becoming almost hackneyed. And so what I'm kind of really interested in is I like examples from both the usual, because I think what they do is great, the, the, um, but also the non-usual suspects. Um, and so I've got exam- I've got companies that I really like um, because of some of the interesting things that they do and the way that they've done it. So one example is a company in the UK called Pets at Home um, because they're a specialist pet retailer. And the way that they've defined their customer experience is really driven by this idea that their customers, well, okay, obviously, they're all pet owners, or they kind of they drive their pets. So what they do is they make sure that as many of their employees as possible are pet owners. And actually, about eighty or ninety percent of all of their employees are pet owners or have grown up around, around pets. What's really interesting about that is that it's it really drives the empathy and the insight from an employee perspective into kind of what the customer's experience is rather than kind of what the customer experience is. If you, if you, you know, and in yeah. many terms, there's, there's a difference. There might only be an apostrophe and an S kind of difference, but there's a big difference between the customer's experience and the customer experience. Um, so I think that they've, t- they've taken a really interesting um, sort of uh, view on it. Another one is the, another example is a firm called, um, G Adventures, and I was had a, had a chance to speak to their CEO, a guy by the name of Bruce Puntip. Now they're the, okay, they're the largest the provider of 
small group of travel in the world. Um, and what they've done is they've done a really interesting thing is they've, they've gone, well, actually, we really need to sort of think about who are the most important people in the company, and the most important people in the company are the ones that deal with the customers. And so they've sort of inverted their, 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 their pyramid, and the, all of their, what in a normal company you would call travel reps or agents or whatever, they've actually given everybody at the front end of their, um, their organization the title Chief Experience Officer. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating because what they've and what they've done is they've just pushed all the control and all the power right to the front. They said you're the ones that are in charge of the experience. You're the ones that that do the right sort of things. We're just kind of here to help. Um, so we're going to basically reorganise our organisation such that it, it sort of um, it, it sort of drives that experience. Um, and it's playing out in the results. They are, as I say, they're the um, the biggest company in the world in their specialism. They've been growing. Uh, They've had double-digit growth for the last oh, 10, maybe 15 kind of years. And so the results are starting to kind of play out in that. Um, another example is um, a UK-based kind of company. They're quite small. They've, they're in restaurants called Hawksmoor. Steak, they're a steakhouse. Um, they, they've got a really interesting approach in that you think, oh, steakhouses, how kind of wild can that, can, can that get? And I think, again, it's more about how they've structured their um, their culture and their approach to the customer experience. What they've said is that, actually, the customer experience is going to vary depending on who you get served by. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to hire kind of people that are different. And we're going to hire people that other hospitality kind of players aren't going to hire because of the, possibly the way they look. They might have like a sleeve of tattoos or whatever, right. or earrings or fancy hair, but they're going to find, we're going to hire people with personality. And the way that they work that is through their sort of culture statement where they say this is their maxim is, and it goes, work hard and be nice to people. And it, they start from that, and then they have a set of principles and standards that they then aspire to. That's how they measure kind of how they deliver. And so it's all about this idea, that, and it's interesting, you go back to the systematically yeah. side of things, is like that's not systematic, but then again, it sort of is. So, like everybody gets this individual experience, which is just really interesting and very cool. But there's a bit of a variety in there. So, uh, it's just it's just a really interesting approach, and it's not sort of standardised. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, Adrian, about those three examples is that they they take the notion of customer experience from three different angles. Yeah. So the so if I take the first one with the pets company, mm-hmm. the the notion is well you're your employees must uh, adopt the same uh, experience and empathy with the customers. Yeah. So then the, the challenge there, I think, is as a sort of like a best practice for the companies is, you know, if I sell cosmetics to women, do I need to be a woman? And, the, and the, you, know, I, you know, so I, I've gone down that route because I work for L'Oreal where uh, 92% of the senior executives, of course, were men selling to 75% women. So, you know, complicated question. But it does, uh, you know, this notion of having, being able to walk in the customer's shoes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if to the extent that it's possible, like, you know, if you go to a restaurant, what well, everyone is eating at restaurants. So it's kind of easy to, to do that. At the same time, the challenge can be being in the mindset of the customer class we're talking about. So yeah. if, especially in a service area where, and, and maybe in a more luxurious area where we may not have the same kind of means. We may own a dog, but we don't know what a dog on a luxury liner looks like. 
Right. And so your your need then is to to match the the customer set in in the way you deal with them because that's the experience you're going to be providing for them. Sure. sure. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's I mean, it's an interesting kind of question, and and it may be. I guess this is it goes back to the idea around systematically. Um, and how do you systematically do that? I, I think there's an interesting um, approaches that are interesting idea that well, I think in many ways some people treat customer experience as being this functional sort of like specialism and it's a quite an objective sort of thing, but it's not. It's completely subjective. It's completely variable. I think there's a set of questions and a set of things that you can approach things. Empathy and having um, understanding and affiliation with your kind of customer kind of group is one thing. It, it, but it's not a... Um, you. A mandatory thing that is almost like you have to go down this path. It's like that in in it just wouldn't be appropriate in many industries to to you know to to do that. Um, but yet it's a criteria that I think some companies need to consider and then decide how they're going to approach this. Um, it I mean it's the same. You look at kind of we were talking earlier about films and stuff and how um, you know. The, the, the human population splits kind of like 50% male, 50% kind of like kind of, kind of female, give or take a few kind of like kind of like single digits. And yet most of the kind of the, um, the entertainment producers yeah. and most of the entertainment industry is dominated by kind of men. Oh, yeah. You, and you think about it and go, uh, how does that work? Yeah. Um, and so, um, yes, it's a criteria. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that we should consider. No, is it, is it a thing that we have to going to go? We have to going to go down that way? Not necessarily. It doesn't mean that you, that's that is a, a critical success factor, but it's something I think is definitely worth considering. Yeah, I think. Well, the way I, I look at it in terms of systematic, as you point out perfectly, is that at, at a certain scale, it's very easy to get yeah. people of a like mind. But if you have to end up having to do that across, let's say, eighty countries and uh, 260 cities and so on and so forth, you obviously have to create a blueprint. Yes. Uh, because otherwise you end up with a lack of consistency in terms of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so, so the systems necessarily come into place as you grow. And, and so the, uh, what I, we're going back to the Hawksmoor uh, example, which I found interesting, is, is what they have is, is some sort of shared attitude which is work hard and be nice. And then afterwards, within that, allow the personality to blossom and, sure. and then take benefit from that. And I think actually thinking about that, what I like about that is it does speak to a meta trend, which is everybody wants to feel different. They all need to, they all need to be a, a part of something, but uh, individuals as customers want to feel different. Sure. What better way to provide a personalized experience to say, well, you like... Tattoos on the left arm, well, then go to the tattoo the left arm guy, and then tattoos on the right arm, you know, and so on and so forth. So you end up finding, you know, the thing for you, which makes you feel a little bit special and different. Sure. Sure. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's, um, and again, that goes back to my, um, well, there's two things. One is you talk about the blueprints, and I think the blueprint is, is, is right, but I think what we've got to um, understand is that is 
how far do we go with the blueprints? Yeah. I think our tendency in traditional sort of um, organizations and a traditional style of management is to kind of take the blueprint and take it right up to the curb. Yeah, and the engineer takes over. It's got to be this, and it's 2.13, and it's, you know, 16 procedure calls, and you do 8.1, and then, you, of course, you zap in your, you know, legacy infrastructure, which, of course, ties you down to a completely false type of system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's, I think that's maybe the, the thing is that what we've got to do is that, um, you know, there is this kind of old idea that hasn't been talked about for, uh, kind of for, for a while. It's like um, we talked about in the wake of globalization. People talk about think global, act local. Now, I think what ended up happening is when that came along, we were still in this whole um, traditional industrial economics kind of production organization sort of like kind of cycle. And so the blueprint almost like went right up to the kind of curve and it was kind of controlled by kind of like kind of people. But now what we're seeing is that we've seen this rise and sort of and change in sort of customer demands and preferences and behavior and stuff. And so maybe we need to kind of pull back a little bit on the blueprint and allow a little bit of variability, a bit more variability at the fringe to allow people to, if you like, shine uh, both inside an organization right but also kind of outside an organization as kind of customers. So we get to feel like we're an individual as, say, as a worker or as, as an employee, but we also get to feel like we're an individual as a customer as well. So, right. The point I, I really get uh, zipped in on, and you, you talked about it with the G Adventures, is the front office people who are dealing with the customers are the ones delivering sure. the experience. And the reality is that there, it's, it's not necessarily highbrow, uh, needs in terms of skill set, you know, experience. It's more about attitude. And I was just reading this morning about how in in in, in the UK, uh, you know, all businesses are looking for more temp labors, but the problem is they don't have the right skill set. My argument would actually be that we, we're missing a lot of the attitude set. Sure. Because when we're talking about experience, it's about that can-do attitude. And so I think that probably these blueprints that go up to the curb, as you say, might be also a little bit in uh, the manager's lack of trust in their employee, their sales force, and the management structures in, in between, and sure. they kind of dummy it down. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, you know, if you think about, let's take a very, uh, you know, mainstream, uh, mainstream example. If you look at sort of call center sort of staff as being one of the major ways that we sort of experience sort of service, you know, particularly we're dealing with utilities or kind of big brands or, you know, our banks or whatever. And it, do you know that the, the, the average call center kind of employee gets kind of paid lower than the average wage in the UK? That which, if you think about it, when, kind of, when, co when companies turn around and go, um, it's the... Um, Customer, you know, we put the customer at the center of everything we do. Service and experience right. is really important, and yet the lowest paid people in your organization are the ones that really are at the front end, at the front on the front line in terms of experience. What that really says to me is like, do you really value kind of that experience? Because if you if you did, then you would be investing in those kind of like people sure. right, and showing that through the kind of the way that you incentivize or you recruit and you add and whatever. Now, so there's a there's a there's a, there's a kind of a collision that happens around kind of what we say we want and what we're willing to do to right. get it. And then we have these legacy systems where we can't cut that, we can't change that. So I want to get into uh, Adrian, how you deal with your your customers. You have big and small, so 
uh, will obviously change things. But what is your process that you go through in order to help your customers improve their customer experience? Talk us through sort of the, how, your process. Okay, I mean, so, um, so I, my 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 business, my consultancy business, is called Rare Business, and rare because I like rare things. I like kind of like things that are special and stand out, and it's also you know the things that are kind of you know beautiful in, in their own sort of way. That people talk about a rare beauty and things, but rare conveniently also stands for a bit of a process that I use, <laughs> which, funnily enough, brilliant. And rare stands for uh, research, aim, roadmap, execute, which is kind of quite nice. It's just a standard sort of process. So the interesting thing, so the first thing I would do um, in terms of the helping a company figure out kind of what's the best way to improve their their um, their customer experience or the service is a research phase. And I think the, the most important part of that, and I think it's the most important part of, say, any development process, particularly if you think about what, say, personal development, let's say, um, the first step that you have to do is you have to build awareness and build self-awareness. And I think that's one of the first things that, that I do. You, I mean, there's things like, do I walk in, in a customer's shoes? Do I do kind of customer journey mapping? Do I go and actually directly observe my customers? Do I actually go and spend some time with them and, and, and converse with them? Not in a focus group, not in a structured environment. Just go out and meet people. Yeah. Be human. Mm-hmm. Um, also to do things like um, take your own money and go and spend it using your own process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then flip it around and say, go and sit on the front desk and actually deal with kind of customers and, and, and experience the problems that they are, that, that, that they're actually telling the, the business that, they, that you have, and then try and solve them with the tools that you're giving your own employees. And if you do that, it's a whole immersion sort of like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If everybody did that, if every CEO did that, it would blow their minds. Now, I think that just to add one other little qualifier, not to be expensed. Oh, indeed. Because, uh, you know, the, I would say that the the casual addition will, you know, I'll just put out my expense account. So then that completely biases your, you know, your attention to detail in the sense that, well, you know, who cares? Wait a second. If you're going to spend your own hard cash on that, let's, you have a different level of exigency, much closer to what the customer is looking for. And then, so what? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I uh, so I was just wondering, how do you how do you help uh, the CEO to see straight within this? I mean, for example, you know, you, you do you, do you encourage uh, mystery mystery visits? Because uh, I, I, a lot of times, for example, uh, in, especially in my old company, uh, these kind of visits were all manicured. Yeah. So we would we would pre visit. We would uh, get the 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 buyer to behave as if they were an employee. And we tell them what to tell them, what they had to say, and how they answered to the CEO's questions. I mean, it was definitely not a realistic example. It was more, you were definitely in a goldfish environment, in a goldfish bowl environment. Yeah. How do you, how do you kind of organize those? Is it with the whole C suite or is it just the CEO? Because, I mean, you end up wanting to have the entire C suite singing the same songs. Yes. Well, I think that, I think that, you, I guess what you've got to do is you've got to start, um, You've got to start somewhere, and whether it's the CEO or it's another member of the C-suite, I think what you've got to do is you've got to you've got to help them um, almost lose their handlers 
and do things in a different kind of like kind of way is say we're going to go off piste here mm-hmm. and we're not going to tell anybody we're just going to do it mm-hmm. and and it's a it is a bit of a leap of faith it's like do your own research because what you have to realize is that like you say there are people prepare for things kind of people kind of like you know you, you know surveys get done mystery shopping mystery shopping gets kind of uh, contracted out all of these things all the messages get sort of not necessarily manicured, but they sometimes they get lost in translation as it goes down the line. It's a mm-hmm. bit like Chinese whispers. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> if the CEO, let's say, for example, um, talks about kind of customers, then I think the CEO really needs to understand and really needs to be able to say, put his hand on his heart and, and, and go, you know what? I've saw, I've seen our customers. I've spoken to them. I've served them. I've actually kind of, and I've I've been our I've been our customer. So you're almost like you get this visceral feel for what it's like, um, and I think that's what's missing from many of those kind of things. So it's almost need to, need to step out of the manicured and kind of managed environment and actually go off piste for a little while, and 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 to, you know to do that just to kind of it's, it's a bit of a sheep dip type of kind of shock shock and awe. The and, type of tactic. And when in your experience, what's been the biggest stumbling block in order to get to that perspective? You know, is it systems? Is it people? How would you? I think. I, I mean, I think. I think. I think it's a. It's a combination of all sorts of different things. And um, a lot of it is to do with what people, um, how people view themselves, how they, how they view their role. How they view is important. How they kind of they, they value their time and all this sort of like stuff. Um, you know, I shared a story the other, the, the other day, um, and it's, it's been talked about a lot, but it sort of gets lost in the fog a little bit. Um, so Tesco, as a retailer, before they sort of lost their way a little bit, was um, overseen by Sir Terry Lee, and he was reportedly um, he reportedly spent. It's on average, two days a week in store, working with these employees, talking to customers, just listening, observing all of those different sort of like things. Two days a week, um, and I think what what he what he did by what he said through his actions was this is one of the most important things that I do, kind of being you know being in front of kind of customers, and he did it consistently, and he did it throughout this kind of time that that Tesco's went from this middling. Kind of player to one of the biggest kind of like supermarket retailers, general grocery grocery retailers in in the world. Now they subsequently fell off a cliff when he, you know, you know, I, we're not sure if it was due to kind of what he did or he left very quickly and it was like, no, nah, not my fault. But anyway, they subsequently sort of lost their way and lost that sort of practice and that sort of touch and that insight. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting is. You know, particularly if you turn around to a, a boss of a firm and, and, and they say, oh, yeah, customers are really important to us. And you go, if you ask them, go, so when was the last time you actually talked to a customer or served a customer or solved a customer's kind of problems? I mean, are you on the tools? Mm-hmm. When was the last time you were on the tools? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because and that question tells you a lot about how they value their time. And value their their position and value their customers. So, what are the things that's obviously important in all this? Whether you know, because you have there's the good intention of listening to my customers. Customers always right. Uh, yet we still have to pay the piper and uh, specifically be happy with the shareholder. Sure. So, uh, and one of the things I I think that remains um, 
complicated is the are the measuring tools for customer mm. experience customer satisfaction one thing customer experience maybe another how what do you think are the best tools for measuring uh, the advancement of customer experience well again it's uh, in, as is my nature I'm slightly contrary when it comes to this sort of like sort of stuff um, and in terms of tools and measuring customer experience, I think I would kind of I need to I would suggest that you need to step back a little bit because there's lots of different tools for managing lots of different elements of the customer experience, and there's lots of technology companies are coming up with. Yeah, this is the be all and end all. This is the best thing ever. Da -da -da. Got all these bells and whistles, and that's brilliant. And a lot of stuff that's really good. And I'm not really I'm not going to name any anybody, um, or blame anybody, or shame anybody even. Um, but I guess the, the thing I would suggest in terms of when you step back is you have to ask yourself, what are you actually kind of measuring? Because customer experience, what is that? I mean, it's this sort of ephemeral, if that's the right sort of word, it's all out there. Yeah, it's abstract. Quite, yeah, you can't quite touch it. Um, so I guess you need to kind of, actually, you have to come back and say, what are you measuring? You know, actually, why are you doing this? What are your objectives? Um, I think there's some, I think some of the, 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 the traditional metrics around you know, satisfaction, that's a really good thing, but satisfaction doesn't necessarily prove loyalty or drive loyalty. Maybe the thing we need to be measuring is, you know, there's a big, people have a lot of fondness for NPS scores and promoter scores. Yeah, it's okay, but it's, I think it's, they've got this 10-point sort of scale, but there's all sorts of contextual, emotional, cultural kind of biases that are implicit within that. I mean, as a Brit, I would never give I would never give somebody a ten just because I wouldn't. <laughs> you <laughs> so, stingy man. Yeah, well, exactly. I'm just like, well, ten. It's yeah. never going to be ten. No, one's, no, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. Um, but then you should maybe measure. I like the idea about efforts and being easy, but I also like the idea about simplifying scales and trying to get actionable, actionable insight. Um, but I think what the one thing that people sh um, possibly are doing but not necessarily doing as well as they could is like is measuring are your customers returning and are they kind of and when are they returning and how are they so they have this whole idea of like customer lifetime value and you know do, you know are they showing up again and where are they showing up and, and so on and so forth because if that's the thing the MPS seems to get to the point where we think that the idea around if I promote you as a proxy for yeah I'll return well yeah that sort of can happen but not necessarily yeah. and so I think there's I would suggest that people need to go back to almost like rudiment, rudimentary sort of um, metrics and say are you satisfying people are you making it easy are you kind of reducing kind of effort are you making it you know m making it simple are people returning are people saying good things about you mm -hmm. there's a guy I, I, I spoke to a oh his name slips my mind um, never mind. Um, he had an interesting thing that he said that um, are you tracking the compliments that you get because right. compliments are a leading um, indicator of service improvements and so that's a really interesting kind of idea about tracking kind of compliments mm -hmm. which is not something you hear very you know very often a little bit uh, like the happiness uh, measurement that Zappos uh, puts in place absolutely but then there's also kind of there's also um, the, the sort of the flip sides sort of uh, dynamic to that and it's an interesting idea which I, I really like and it comes from a guy called Charles Goodhart and he's an economist um, and professor at LSE and uh, was on the Bank of England's kind of policy committees and stuff and 
he's got a little law that's subscribed to him which, which says when a measure becomes a target it ceases to become a good measure hmm. and I think what's really interesting is some people that start going using metrics and they get into the, the measuring sort of thing and then they, they, they just slip and stumble yeah. into using metrics as yeah. targets well, and then, then it get, goes all, all wrong yeah then you get back into systems so um, I wanted to have one last question Adrian which is uh, you're a blogger and yeah. and you you in in online you you promote the idea of blogging. Uh, today there's you know I would say a plethora of information and content out there. To what extent do you believe blogging is an appropriate thing today in today's world for companies? And how would you qualify which companies should be blogging more than others? Um, so if you think that if the if the dynamic that um, Individuals want to really get to know the companies that they're dealing with and doing the research um, on those kind of companies. And one of the ways that, that we can do that is, companies can do that, is through kind of blogging. But not necessarily blogging about, oh, check out this next product or service or check about this, or check about that, all these different things. They almost want to get an insight in terms of, they want to understand who the people are. People, you know, we, we trust less of, we, only was it... Um, the Edelman Trust Barometer says that only about 20% of us trust kind of what companies say about themselves in their advertising and marketing. But yet, they'll trust technical experts, they'll trust people like kind of me, they'll, they'll trust industry experts, all of those different sort of things. So what the interesting thing is that companies, I think, need to think about this idea that they need to try and develop trust at a distance and actually have to put the effort in in order to kind of to lay out their sort of stall, let people get to know who they are and what their ideas are and how they think um, as a way of helping their customers or the prospective customers get to know them before they even think about picking up the phone or sending them an email or placing an order or whatever, which we know that most people can like do these days in that, what, 60, 70% of the buying decisions are kind of like made before somebody picks up the phone. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that, yes, blogging has been around for a long time, Yes, companies should do um, do more of it, but yes, they should do it better. And they should do it in a way that allows people to get to know them, mm -hmm. and how they work as a company and how they are as kind of like kind of people. It's almost like they take your business and turn it inside out. In that way, it'd be a good way of, of, um, of developing that sort of trust and insights that, that the customers are sort of looking for. Um, but I don't see that many people that are sort of doing that. And what about uh, the C-suite? I mean, so do you, would you... How frequently would you recommend that someone on the C-suite, CEO or other, uh, do a Richard Branson and, and be the blogger? Um, crumbs, I don't know. I mean, uh, frequency, I mean... Um, well, no, how, how often would... No, not how often should they blog, but how frequently do you find yourself or would you recommend uh, to... How many companies would you, would you... What type of companies would you recommend that someone from the C-suite actually be doing the blogging? Well, I think that she would do it. I think because I think you know we talked about before the, the you know the very the very art of uh, blogging or even just writing in in public and writing a a personal sort of note um, is is a great way to sort of develop sort of like thinking. It's a great place for a great way for people to get to know you. I would say that I would advocate that most people. Could do it. I mean. 
crumbs. It's not blogging, but look at the um, look at the letter Buffett sends as part of Berkshire Hathaway to these you know these, these two these companies, and people can read those letters kind of avidly in terms of getting insights into what kind of Warren Buffett's all about. I think it's um, and he is a widely trusted, widely respected kind of man, not just because of, of his investing success, but also kind of how open kind of he is in terms of his approach to kind of companies. And I think that in many ways is, is a, I think it's a valuable thing that, that, that many companies don't t- take the time to try and kind of leverage. And it's too much of it is kind of uh, dominated by stuff that's, oh, it's all about me. Yeah. Well, I, I had a personal experience where my boss uh, said to me, he was president, uh, that I that he wanted to blog, and and uh, I said, "Great!" I, I really promoted that idea. But when we got to the actual uh, material that was being blogged, it was um, it was all about him, but it was him without any emotion. So it was like, "Well, I went to this. I went to Dubai and visited a salon, and it, this it, this is the salon." <laughs> Yeah, and it's, I think that's the thing. It's not. It shouldn't necessarily be a, um, um, a a travelogue, as it were, or kind of like a regurgitation of your diary or what your day is like. It's almost should be a case of um, look for something that you noticed. Look for something that you found interesting, and ask yourself why did you find it interesting, and what did it mean to you, and all that sort. Of, so tell that sort of like story, because yeah. actually it's a it's more of a share an idea, share a thought. Share, you know, share a feeling, you know, um, share, share a story. Um, it, it might be that you you went somewhere, you went to this, you know, you went to Dubai, you went to this store, and one of the things that you saw that you made you really proud is like, tell me a story about an employee that you that, that did something. When you saw it, you thought that was brilliant. That made me feel like I was like ah, I was like halt, <laughs> really proud. That's the thing that I think. Well, you know. That for more for both kind of customers and also for employees sure. is going to have an amazing sort of effect. I so agree. So, Adrian, our time has come to a close. I appreciate you giving me your, us your time. What's the best way for someone to read read about you? I mean, I've got put in the links, so it's not a shameless plug. Just a best way to follow you, track you down, read about what you write. Um, so um, you can check me out on my website is adriansweskoe.com, so A-D-R-I-A-N-S-W-I-N-S-C-O-E.com. Um, I've also got a Forbes column, uh, which if you put Forbes and my name in it, they'll find it. Um, my name all together is at adriansweskoe. After it's fine, and, you know, I'm an unusual name, so you can look me up, collect in and say hello. That's for sure. Adrian, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Rid me of the grave and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in care.
blend and look ugly in the end. But they're pretty in their own disgusting values. We'd hang our portraits in the hallways, make our house guests cringe. Oh, I wouldn't care about the This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.